sense. It's a beautiful, comforting, challenging text we're going to be in. Um, so to catch you up to speed, we've, we've been walking through the book of Revelation. We're just at the, the beginning. We haven't even gotten into the crazy stuff yet. Um, and in Revelation 1, so far what we've learned is that Revelation is four things. We have to understand it and these kind of four things to really be able to, uh, to read it well. Uh, first, it's a letter. The book of Revelation is a letter. It's written to real people in real time. So that means it doesn't mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them. And so when we read it, we have to understand it as a letter. We have to understand it as an apocalypse. So it's going to bring some imaginative things. It's unveiling things. And so as we read through it, we're going to see imagery that's going to be pointing to different things and uh, designed to evoke things within our soul. So it's a letter. It's an apocalypse. Third is a prophecy. And so it's designed to bring comfort. And there's going to be times you're going to exhale. And some of the most comforting texts in all the Bible are in the book of Revelation. So it's comforting and convicting. And so the design of any prophetic book that you read will will bring both of those things uh, to to pass and and comfort and conviction. So it's a letter, it's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and and last but definitely not least, it's a liturgy of worship. And so it's designed to draw us to Jesus. It's designed to awaken affection in our hearts to Jesus. We're going to even find that in the text today. So it's those four things. Last week we talked about this encounter that John had, um, and then uh, Jesus tells John to write some things to seven churches, and we're going to meet those seven churches in a minute. Um, but begin here. There's a phrase called, uh, it's, it's, the, it's, it's behind the curtain. For those that grew up in theater, maybe that's a phrase that you're familiar with, but it's an idiom that originated in theater, and it's designed to, uh, to look behind the curtain or look behind the scenes. It means to gain an insight into how something operates uh, beyond what is normally present to the outsider. So it provides an extra measure of clarity that an outsider wouldn't see, but if you go behind the scenes or behind the curtain, you see a side of something that you wouldn't have seen from the outside. And in the text today, John takes us behind the curtain when Jesus talks to these seven churches. And so we're going to experience something really kind of intimate as we get behind the curtain and see some things that Jesus speaks to these churches. And it's going to be this beautiful dance of comfort and conviction. It's, it's to them comfort and conviction, and an application, it's to us, comfort and conviction. So Revelation 2 and 3, again, we've been mentioning this over the last several weeks. There are cards in the back to kind of help guide you through reading through this. Again, our hope is that you're reading the scripture and that you're reading as we're navigating through this. And so I'm not going to be able to go line by line through all of Revelation 2 and 3, but love for you to go through this. It's, a, it's kind of a reading plan as we go through the book of Revelation from a week, week standpoint. And so we meet seven churches in this letter. We meet Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, you can see the map here. Uh, all of these churches are in the western part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And so you go kind of south uh, east of here, uh, right where the bottom of the bottom right of the screen is, that's where gonna, Israel is going to be down there. And so these churches were planted by the early church, and the gospel is spread throughout all of Asia Minor during this time. And, and John writes these seven churches that Jesus told him to write. And so we're going to approach this text with, with two objectives. The first exact, uh, objective is gonna, we're going to zoom out and see some broader themes that we see in each one of the letters that are written 
to these churches. And then we're going to zoom in the second half of our time together and look specifically at a letter that was written to the church in Ephesus. So those are the two things we're going to do this morning. The first is we're going to zoom out again and see a, a few themes from all the seven churches. And so each church, when you read through each of these, the one to Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum, you're going to find that there's a theme, there's a kind of a, a template that is written to each one of these churches. And so every one of them is going to d- begin with a description of Jesus. Whether it's Ephesus or Smyrna or Thyatira, you're going to find there's a description of Jesus that begins that letter. And then second, you're going to see an affirmation. There's going to be something that Jesus brings encouragement to within the church that he's writing. So you see a description, you see an affirmation, you're going to see a correction. Almost all of the letters are going to, there's going to be, a church is going to receive a correction. And then lastly, it's going to be a motivation, that Jesus is going to seek to bring some motivation to the church, encourage the church with their journey of faith. There's three specific phrases that are just repeated over and over and over again in these seven small letters that we receive. Uh, Nine times in, in, in Revelation 2 and 3, we hear this phrase, I know your works. I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. So we're, we're hearing something about Jesus that we can learn here for ourselves. What does that tell us about Jesus? That he is intimately aware of where each church is. He is so acquainted in knowing, in his om- omniscience, and his all-knowing abilities of what's going on with each church. Jesus is intimately involved with our lives, whether you realize it or not. He knows your works. He's well aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly within your own life and within our church. When he says he's Emmanuel, he's with us, he means it. He's with us by his spirit. So he is so aware of where we are and he knows where we are, maybe even before we know where we are. Sometimes it takes time. If you have a close relationship or if you're married, you find that that there is times where someone else can see where you are before you see where you are. And, And Jesus, man, he's well aware, seeing not just on the outside, but on the inside, he's aware of where we are, which is why there's no need to hide when we come to Jesus. There's no need to put a mask on when we come to Jesus because he sees right through it. It's a defeating purpose. If you would put your mask on when you come to Jesus, he sees through it. He knows our works. He already knows that you're weary and heavy laden. He already knows. So he says, come to me. Don't pretend. I got it. I know your works. Second, we see eight times this phrase, repent, throughout this, these seven churches, Repent, repent, repent. It's, the biblical meaning for repent is, is about face. It's a 180 degree turn. It's a reversal of direction. It's a reversal of attitude. And this is an opportunity over and over again in his kindness and in his mercy. He's inviting these churches, turn to me. Turn to me, turn your heart to me. You see it in like a tender shepherding approach to turn these churches to him afresh. The implication is that you aren't too far gone. It doesn't matter where you are. If you are still breathing, you still have the opportunity to turn your heart to God. And this is his kindness. In Romans 2.4, it says that his, the kindness of God, uh, the second half, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's his kindness that he would even call us to repent and cause us to see where we are and cause us to make an about face. So we see that over and over again, there's this, there's this theme of, of repent as we look behind the curtain and see this interaction of Jesus with these churches. 
And lastly, there's seven times in every one of the churches, Jesus says this phrase, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers. He, he gives this motivation at the end of these moments with each of these churches, to the one who conquers. It's this invitation of faithfulness. It's this invitation to not quit. It's this invitation to lean in even when life can be tricky for us. You know, we're learning about discipleship here. You know, as we go through this book of Revelation, we're going to uh, try to apply how this causes us to follow Jesus, what this looks like to be formed by Jesus. And here, we see an invitation of faithfulness. Again, for the context here, remember that just 30 years before this church received this letter from John, Nero put the church on blast and caused persecution to blow up throughout this area. People were, were getting thrown in jail. People were getting killed. Christians being burned at the stake. I mean, this is like serious, traumatic times for the church. And just three decades later, John writes to them. He says, to the one who conquers, don't give up. I know how hard those 30 years prior were, and I know how traumatizing and fear-crippled uh, you might feel but to the one who conquers is this imitation of faithfulness. To the one who conquers, who doesn't quit, who keeps going. He recognizes how hard life can be, how pressures can be so real, and how temptations can be so powerful. And he says, to the one who conquers. Every year I have this journal um, that no one's ever going to be able to read um, that I probably should put a password on because journals are very vulnerable. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I have a journal that every year I, I reset. Um, and it's, it's at the top of the journal. It's, it's, on, it's on a Word doc. And at the top of the journal are like 10 things that I say, things to never forget. And so at the top, over the last however many years, 36, I guess, um, but more specifically over the last decade, I've been kind of considering what are some things that have been like super important that are shaping who I am? And, and I've written them at the top of this journal that I can go back to over and over again. These eight to 10 things I've learned through the years are about the man that I want to be or about the marriage I want to have or about the dad I want to be or about the follower of Jesus that I want to be. And one of the things that I've learned is this, that I want to remember is this. Remember how Jesus defines kingdom success. Being, uh, walking with Jesus, walking with God, doing what he says, and leaving the results up to him. And, and, and for me, I need to remember that because I, as a Westerner who's grown up thinking that metrics are the end-all, be-all, and they are the thing that define me more than anything else, I need to remember that those things aren't what defines me. That John the Baptist got his head chopped off, his ministry flopped, and Jesus said there's not a greater man to ever live than John the Baptist. That means that there is a discrepancy between how maybe Americans define success and the way the kingdom defines success. And so I want to remember that kingdom success is defined differently. And so this is one of those things that I've learned. And within that, uh, Matt Chandler, a pastor out in Dallas, he said this about faithfulness. Uh, he said, there aren't too many books written about how you can toil away all your life and be unbelievably faithful to God and see little fruit this side of heaven. And yet God sees things differently. We always have to be a little bit weary of the idea that numeric growth and enthusiastic response are always signs of success. The Bible isn't going to support that. Faithfulness is success. Obedience is success. And so at the top of that paper, I want to remember year in and year, don't give in to the seduction, Ernie, that, that, to, that, that, that metric is the definition. Faithfulness 
to Jesus. It's what defines us. And so to the one who overcomes, Jesus sends friends, our baptism and our identity as children of God are the things that ground us above everything else in life. And yet, we are so deeply tempted to be assimilated into our culture. Just to slowly, it's that cut, uh, what is it, death by a thousand cuts. Just slowly over time become numb to our allegiance to Jesus and just to submit to the system of Western civilization and just look like the rest of the world and not be light or salt in this world. We all have that deep temptation to so slowly drift into an identity that isn't Jesus or his kingdom. John Mark Homer says it like this. He says, every follower of Jesus and every culture has to constantly ask the question, and what, in what ways have I been assimilated into the culture that we are in? Where, ha- where have we drifted from our... Where have I drifted from my identity and inheritance as followers of Jesus? We have to ask that question. Where am I getting cut over and over again and becoming numb to reality? And where is Jesus inviting us to overcome? See, the draw is real to live for what Revelation will call Babylon. That's this competing kingdom, the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom uh, with, it's, it's a kingdom without King Jesus. It's, a, it's the hope of the gospel without Jesus. We're all being drawn to sleep under that sway. I was thinking about this story that we might be familiar with. It's about Jacob and Esau. So Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was the hairy hunter. Uh, Jacob was kind of like, a, I guess, a city guy a little bit, if you compare the two. And Esau was born first, and so he got the birthright. And so they were both born, and so you learn about them in Genesis, uh, Genesis 25. I think it might be up there, Genesis 25. Uh, I don't know if this was, yeah, great. Uh, It says this, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. It goes on, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, he gave up his inheritance for lentil stew. Like, like really, man? Like, that's it? That's what you're doing? It's so tempting, though, for us to give up our inheritance as followers of Jesus to sell that privilege for the, to the embracing of Babylon, this nasty, cold lentil soup. And we all have that temptation to be like Esau and to, I mean, to give up the joys and the inheritance of the life that we have. And Jesus to the churches here says, to the one who overcomes, don't give up your birthright. Don't give up your inheritance. You, uh, you've been bought with blood. There's more for you. Don't settle into the assimilation of this age to the one who overcomes. Day by day, choosing to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus when you feel it. To follow Jesus when you don't. That long obedience in the same direction. Man, it's the community of Jesus, the body of Christ, that keeps us grounded not to quit. We need each other. 
We can't do it alone. Jesus wrote not to individuals, but to church. He said, to the one who overcomes. I reject the notion that says we can do this on our own. We need each other to walk through this life well. So don't give in to the idea that we should detach in hard seasons. How much more we need each other when times get hard. You know, a community of Jesus who values relational ties and a culture of individualism is so important for us. We desperately, as the church, need to buck against this draw towards isolation and individualism. It always leads us to a bad place when we isolate in that way. To the one who overcomes. One of the scholars I've been reading, he said this about this text. He says, John's call to faithfulness was tempered by the realistic expectation of increased persecution in the near future but it was also buttressed by the certain hope of participation in the new heaven and earth that will follow this temporary persecution. The new heaven and earth are indeed the culmination of God's plan, not only for the people of God, but for the cosmos. And to the one who overcomes. And so we see the behind the curtain. We learn about some themes and some things that happen in all of these letters. And then we zoom in to Ephesus in particular. There's no church we know more about in the New Testament than Ephesus, historically and biblically. Historically, we know that uh, Ephesus was the leading church in Rome. We know that it was about a quarter million people in population. It was a massive city at that time. Uh, There were three trade routes that converged through the city of Ephesus, which made it a a, a hop in place for trade in that time. Uh, we know that the, the temple of Artemis was there, which, is one of the, was what, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so we know that historically, but then biblically we know a lot. We know in the OG 50s and 60s, like the original 50s and 60s, we know that Paul went and he planted the church in Ephesus. He met Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. And he preached the gospel to them, and they became followers of Jesus. And this crew of people were birthed in this place called Ephesus. You fast forward to Acts 19 and 20, we see that Paul went back to the church in Ephesus. And he spent a couple years in that church. In Acts chapter 19, it'll probably just be easier to read it up here. In Acts 19 and verse 18 through 20, it says... Uh, about this church here. The Spirit began to breathe upon this church. And it says, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Spirit breathed upon this church in Ephesus, and it changed the culture in that day and in that time and in that space. I mean, imagine, modernizing this a bit, imagine that thousands of people came together and said, you know what? Our phones are wreaking havoc upon our souls. They are affecting our formation, and they're keeping the spirit from being at work in our midst, and we're going to burn them. And we had this crazy burn time at Terramal Park. Everybody threw their phones in all across Metro Atlanta. Like, phones are being thrown in because people wanted to follow Jesus. I'm not saying we have to do that. Maybe that'll happen, but I don't know. Either way, that's what happened in Ephesus. The Spirit breathed upon this church. 
And then Paul left in Acts 20, and he set up some elders in that church. In Acts 20, verses 17, it says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's speaking to the elders there. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so Paul leaves them. It goes on. He's with tears, leaving this, these elders to care for this church in Ephesus. That happens in the 50s. And then in the 60s, we find that Paul wrote a uh, letter called the uh, Ephesians. And then a little later, Paul writes Timothy, one of the elders there, to encourage him in 1st and 2nd Timothy. It's writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. We find a little later, tradition says that, that John, the one who wrote Revelation, actually set up shop in Ephesus. And he actually had Mary, Jesus' mother, who he kind of adopted as, as his own mom, in Ephesus. And so all this is happening in Ephesus. And a little bit later, John writes to the church in Yes. And so we see that John writes to this church. And the sad part about it is that there's no active church there today. Something happened where maybe some of the things that took place, even in this letter, they didn't adhere to the words of Jesus. And so we're going to read it. In Revelation 2, starting in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary, but, this is that behind the curtain, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to each of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what do we see here? We see Jesus is holding the seven stars and his hand, and he's walking among the golden lampstands. It's this assurance in his love for his people. It's this, this commitment that he has to this, his people, as if he's saying, I'm holding you. There's this, I'm holding the seven stars. I'm holding the churches. I'm holding you. You can't be snatched out of my hand. There's this confidence that as we read this, we can understand that Jesus is saying, I am holding you. It's as if he's saying, we need to have a conversation. But just know it doesn't need to be bathed in shame. I'm holding you. 
I love you. I'm going to uh, call you to repent, but it's from a place of love and care. It's not from a place of, of fix your life and I'm out, but it's from a place of you're mine, so act like it. Because you're mine, because you have an inheritance, act like it. We have this thing in our family called the Wagner Way. Where, where, and my last name's Wagner, so Ernie Wagner, and so this is the Wagner way. And so for Alex and I, there's a culture that we have within our family. And, and, and brothers, we're kind to each other. And so if we're, if we're mean over and over again, hey, the Wagner way is not that. It's not saying, like, if you're, if you're not going to act this way, you're out. Like, you're my sons. I have three boys. You're my sons, and they're crazy. You're my sons, except for the oldest. The oldest is in the back, and I shouldn't have said that. He's not. <laughs> you're good, buddy. Um... So regardless, um, we, we teach about the Wagner way. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, I, I hold you. But this is not the, the way of the kingdom of Jesus. And he, so he lays out these seven things that Ephesus was doing well. They're, they're, I know your good deeds. I know your works. I know that you're not giving up. I know that you're, you're uh, adhering to orthodoxy. I know all of these Things that you're patient and you're persevering and you're resisting the pressure of Caesar. He says, but I have this against you. I have this against you. Yet in it all, all the good that they were doing, Jesus points out something that they need to hear and I would say that we need to hear. As he walks among the churches, he's well aware, not just of what's on the surface, but of the condition of their soul. He was aware of the condition of their soul. And in the behind the curtain moment, um, we find that they had begun to do the good things on the outside and their heart had become cold. See, love for Jesus drives the Christian. Love for Jesus drives the Christian to be faithful. Love for Jesus drives the Christian to be distinct. Love uh, for Jesus drives the Christian to love our neighbor. It's the fuel that keeps us going. And Jesus knew that. And he said, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. It's interesting that Mary, again, was likely a part of this church. And it's interesting because uh, she, uh, Mary was, was well acquainted of moments where she had left Jesus behind. In Luke 2... Uh, we read about how Mary thought Jesus was in her midst, but in reality, it hit her that he wasn't. Let me read it to you. Luke 2.43, Jesus has become, you know, a, a tween in some ways. And so he's a little bit older at this point. Uh, and in verse 43 of Luke 2, it says this. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So during the past few years of COVID, uh, I know we've all had parenting mistakes, but I, I don't know if we've lost our kid for three days. Okay, so Mary's there, okay? She's now moved on and like, oh my gosh, where's Jesus? I, I thought he was in my midst and now I realize he wasn't. And we can think that he's in our midst, but in our busyness, maybe he's not. 
Maybe we've moved on, and in our busyness, we've become isolated and not realized that our hearts have actually drawn cold toward him. Maybe we haven't sensed his presence or experienced his nearness in some time. This church was praised for orthodoxy, but chided for their failure to love and challenged to repent and return. We're invited to not lose the love we had at first. You know, we've all had crushes. Uh, I myself, my wife and I have been married for 13 years. And in our early days of dating, half of our time was apart. Uh, I was living in India when she was in Kansas City. Um, I was in Atlanta and she was in Kansas City. Again, half of our relationship was apart. And man, we called each other at odd hours. Why? Because we... We, we had this desire to know each other and grow and, and knowing each other. We check in constantly. It's that attentive, eager, intentional, kind of annoying, but like from the outsider, like chill out, you know, like that early love that we can feel. When together we would leave each other, we'd, you know, come home and, and call, make sure we're good. Like it's that constant like engagement towards each other. But as time goes on, you know that if you've been married. As time goes on, that can begin to just become stale. And likewise with our relationship with Jesus. And he invites us, I have this against you. And maybe even for us, we've lost our first love. And his response is remember. He says, remember. Remember my love for you. Remember the early days. Remember the times when you remembered how good the gospel was to you. Remember. And then repent. He doesn't say repent, then remember. He says, remember, then repent. Remember my kindness and my care and allow that to draw you back to me. See, if we lose love, service becomes a drudge. If we lose love, orthodoxy becomes legalism. If we lose love, the hatred for the teachings of the Nicolaitans becomes hatred for the people of the Nicolaitans. I don't know about you, but I feel it. I told you this before, sometimes we get into text and I, I feel, man, I feel like the thing is just staring me right in the face. And I felt that in this text for myself this last week even. I've been sitting on this one. That there's, there's good stuff happening in my life and I'm so grateful for that. I can look on the outside and see a lot of good that's happening. And maybe you feel the same way. And I can recognize also how easy it is to just move, move past Jesus, have this against you. You've left the love you had at first. It's that first commandment, right? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's what St. Augustine said. We know the first half of the quote. We don't know the second. It's this ethical framework. He says, love God and do whatever you please. You might have heard that before, but he doesn't end there. People can totally turn that into a train wreck. And that's not all he's saying. Love God and do whatever you please for... The soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. When our heart's there, like when we're in it, and when he matters to us, I'm not talking about just if you work at a church. Like this applies to whatever you do, sales or carpentry or managing people or whatever you do. Like why do you do it? Why? 
Is it for him? Is it to be pleasing to him? Or is it just to have the career that you dreamed of having? I have this against you. And this is a beautiful challenge for us to remember and to repent. So what do we learn about spiritual formation, discipleship from this text? Yes, don't give up to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Yes, don't give up. But also make sure there is oil in your heart along the way. Can't afford to move past love for Jesus. Our heart matters. It tells us that our heart does matter. Cares of this world and desires for other things will crush and cripple and suffocate your heart. There is a draw, friends, that will cause our hearts to become numb. Good things in this world, pleasures and money and wealth and the dream career, all those things are are neutral, but they can cripple our souls. I was meeting with my counselor this last week and talking about the season I'm in, and, and he just said to me, there are seasons where our environment isn't always conducive to keep our heart tender. There are times in life and it's just hard and busy and there's a grind and it's difficult and there's lack of sleep and all that kind of stuff can be happening. And he said, the thing that can keep you in it are spiritual practices. It's the spiritual discipline that can keep you in it along the way. And so as a real practical note, there is an opportunity. I'll just say two things as I close. Uh, in February, March, and April, we're going to have <clears throat> uh, some workshops that we're going to do. And then uh, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month. So the fourth week of the month, we don't do community groups. And so that fourth Wednesday, which is February 23rd, March 23rd, and I think it's April 27th, we're going to have workshops here where we're going to kind of lean into what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're going to talk about his character and his heart. We're going to talk about a rule of life. We're going to talk about spiritual practices over this spring semester. And I want to to invite you to be a part of that. If you're like, man, I want to be able to lean into what it looks like to practically follow Jesus and stir my affections for him. That would be a very practical on-ramp for you. We'll have more information on that in the upcoming weeks. But that would be the fourth Wednesday of the month in February, March, and April. But for all of us, I mean, Jesus holds us, he cares for us, and he re- reminds us to remember, remember my goodness, remember my kindness, remember my care, and allow that to turn your heart to him and to repent. I don't know where your heart is, and we couldn't have that kind of conversation in this group setting, but man, this is a challenge, I'll just say for me. I'm, I'm just evaluating, I love me some sports, I love me some podcast, and it's just really good just to stay busy constantly and my heart just to get muted. And man, it's an opportunity for us to just say, where where am I? You got to commute, you got space. I'm not calling you into legalism at all, but I'm calling you to, to stir your affection for Jesus. I have this against you. You've left the love you had at first. Let us be a community who are active in seeking to love Jesus well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just pray these won't won't just be words. I can motivate until about two minutes after this, and that's all I got, God. But you have the ability to change and move. Your spirit has the power to awaken affection, stir us. And as we navigate through this 
complex but beautiful book. Lord, I pray that you would stir us to faithfulness and to do it with a motivation of love. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your care that we love. Why? Because you first loved us. It's because we have nothing to prove that our hearts can be free to be lavish in our love for you. Or lead us in what that looks like for us individually, but above all, stir our affection for you, God. And I pray this would be received with care and grace and not shame and guilt. Let us feel the, the joy of your love and care and kindness for us. In Jesus' name, amen.